0: It is the Festival of Pesach. Today is Tuesday, Chal Hamoed Pesach, the intermediate days of Pesach. And I snuck into the Torch Center to record this week's Parsha podcast because we have the festivals, of course. Uh, this year it's Tuesday night and Wednesday night, so Thursday night the festivals are over and right away we have Parsha Shemini. So when else am I supposed to record this podcast? We cannot miss Parshas. Shmini. is such an iconic Parsha, of course. And uh, the only option is to come to the tour Center on Pesach, on Passover, to sneak in. It's all quiet and abandoned, but I snuck in. I uh, still have one of the keys here and we're going to record, please God, a Parsha podcast for Parshas Shemini. Now, I have a little bit of an apology of sorts to make. I am so behind my emails at RabbiWalbyJump.com. I always promise to return every email. And you may have emailed me like a month ago. And uh, you're wondering if it went to the spam or what's up with Rabbi Walby. Why is he not returning my email? The truth is I've been behind. And I've tried to claw my way out of the... Inbox hole, but it was short-lived, a short-lived respite. Now, I don't want you to hold back your emails. I appreciate and cherish every communication I receive from the amazing Parshapatas audience, Rabbi come? But I just want to apologize. And over the weekend on, on Pesach, I had an incredible idea. You know, everyone's talking about chat GPT and AI. So I figured maybe I'll, I'll take the chat GPT and I'll train it on my data set. So I'll take all my podcasts and all my notes and my book, the one that was published with the help of the Almighty upon a 10 string tarp and the one that I hope to publish soon. I'll put 1300 episodes, add all that to the data set and I'll train the AI to be like a, like a mini wall. We'll call it Wolby GPT. And then I could have it answer all my emails. What a brilliant solution! And no one will know is is it from me? Is it from the AI? No one will know. So I figure, okay, we got to. This this can't be that hard, right? It can't be that hard. So I spoke to some of my uh, computer science friends. They're like, "Well, I don't really know how to do it." So I figured I'd I'd ask uh, ChatGPT. I go to ChatGPT's like, "No, no, you cannot train the AI. You have to." fine-tune it. And then it gives me a whole list of things I need to do. And I don't understand a word. And it says, you really need to be an expert in machine learning to know how to do this. So I said, I guess I'm out. I guess I'm out. I'll have to answer all the emails manually. That's okay. I'll get to them eventually. Or maybe you are an expert in machine learning. And if you are and want to help me build Wolby GPT, send me an email, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. This parsha is a culmination of many months of work and many parshios. We started off in parshas Ruma. We got the instructions for what we need to assemble for the Mishkan for the Tabernacle. And then there was the instruction phase, and then the fundraising phase, and then the implementation phase. And now we had in the Book of Leviticus, we had all the instructions about the various sacrifices and the instructions for the week of inauguration and now finally the temple is built for 7 days moshe was acting as kohen gadol every day he assembled and disassembled the tabernacle for 7 days he brought all the sacrifices and our parsha begins biyom hashmini on the 8th day and now Moshe is going to hand over the keys to Aaron and his sons forevermore. Moshe was coming up for a week, and now he's going to give the priesthood to Aaron, and Moshe himself is going to revert back to being an ordinary Levite, and thenceforth the priesthood will be the domain of Aaron and his four sons, at least that's the plan, and their future male descendants. And the Parsha begins with the specific sacrifices that must be brought on this eighth day, on this Yom Hashmini, on this day of inauguration. There's the Ola, the elevation offering, the Chatas, the Sin offering, the Shlamim, the Peace offering, the Mincha. Aaron is initially hesitant. He doesn't want to take on this role. And Moshe nudges him. He tells him, this is why you were chosen. Go ahead and perform the service. And he does all the various offerings. And then he blesses the nation with a special priestly blessing. And then we read in chapter 9, verse 23, how Moshe and Aaron go to the tent of meeting, go to the Mishkan. They go in and then they go out and then they bless the people. So initially it was just Aaron blessing the people. Now it's Moshe and Aaron blessing the people. And the glory of Hashem appeared to the entire people. Why do Moshe and Aaron enter and then immediately exit the Mishkan? So Rashi asks that question, and he offers us two answers. The first answer is is that Moshe wanted to show Aaron something. He wanted to show him how to do the k'tores, the incense, the special offering that's done inside the Mishkan. That's the first reason that Rashi gives as to why Moshe and Aaron go into the tent of meeting, go into the Mishkan initially and come right out alternatively, Rashi tells us very interesting, Aaron saw that he offered all the sacrifices and he did everything that he was told to do. And the Shekhinah, the divine presence, did not descend upon Israel. And he was sad and he was, you're feeling bad. And he says, I know that God is angry at me. And the reason why the Shekhinah has not descended after we followed all the rules, we dotted all those I's and crossed all those T's, and now the Almighty has not made his presence felt amongst the Jewish people, it's because of me. So he tells Moshe, Moshe, my brother, this is what you did to me? You wanted me to do this and to be all embarrassed? So Moshe went with Aaron into the tent of meeting, and they prayed, and they requested for mercy, and then the Shekhinah descended. So this is the fulfillment of the dream. It worked. The presence of God appeared before the whole nation. We started off this whole process, Parsha Struma, Vasuli Mikdash Bezacham, made for me a mikdash, made for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell amongst you. And indeed, the promise has been fulfilled. We did what he asked us to do, and indeed he kept his side of the bargain. He is dwelling amongst us. And then the following verse, this experience goes up a notch. A fire emitted from Hashem from heaven on high, and consumed all those sacrifices that were atop the altar. And the people saw, and they were so moved by it, they started singing, and they were delighted, and they fell upon their face. So not only did the mice presence show up to the tabernacle, but a heavenly fire descended and it consumed those sacrifices from atop the altar, and the whole nation witnessed this. And they sang and they were delighted and they fell upon their face. They had this experience, this dual experience of joy, of ecstasy, of exaltation, this zenith of the human experience, and that brought joy and, of course, trepidation as one. They were granted this palpable vision of this intense closeness that the mighty had with them, this tangible presence that he was amongst them. And this really marks the high point of our nation the Jewish people, we had the Exodus, and we're eating manna, and we have Moshe, of course, and we have the Sinai revelation. But now the Almighty is saying, I'm dwelling with you. He, so to speak, left the heavens and chose to dwell amongst us. This is the absolute apex, the apotheosis of the human experience. This is even more than Sinai. At Sinai, The Almighty descended down to the mountain, but that was a one-time experience. And now the Almighty is telling the Jewish people, I am going to permanently station myself amongst you. It's great to have a one-time phenomenon, the Sinai Revelation, but now it's a permanent fixture where the Almighty is dwelling amongst the Jewish nation. Before Sinai, before the Revelation, when Moshe was going back and forth, the shuttle diplomacy Negotiating the terms of the pact, of the bond, of the covenant between the mighty and the Jewish people, God tells the nation, if you accept the Torah, you will be a mamleches koanim, a teamdom of priests and a holy nation. And now what do we have? We have God in our midst. Our nation has reached its destiny and in this incredible level of closeness of Supreme spiritual stature. And then there is an unthinkable, unspeakable tragedy. The very next verse, this is verse 1 of chapter 10. The sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, each took his fire pan, and they put fire in their pan, and they placed ketores, incense, upon it, and they brought it before Hashem. They brought a foreign alien fire that he had not commanded them. And then a fire came forth from before Hashem and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. These two crown princes of the Jewish people, the sons of Aaron, they enter unauthorized. There's a dispute. According to Rashi, they enter the Holy of Holies. According to the Ramban, they enter just the sanctuary, which is the venue where the daily Ketores incense offering is brought but they brought a foreign fire. And then another fire is emitted from God. This time it's not there to consume the sacrifices atop the altar, but to consume these crown princes of the Jewish people. Two of the five Kohanim in the whole world, Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, are engulfed in flames and they die. We have one verse after the nation fell upon their faces with exuberant ecstasy, this joy, this delight, this song-inducing experience at the fact that God is in their midst. Right afterwards, tragedy strikes. And the two sons of Aaron, they enter with a foreign fire and they offer an incense offering that God has not requested and a fire descends from God. And these two heirs, to Aaron, these two titans who were slated to replace Moshe and Aaron, they are no longer. Now Rashi in verse 2, he wades into the discussion as to why Nadav and Avihu died. And he offers two reasons. What was their crime? The first is, Lo Aaron, the sons of Aaron didn't die, only Ella. halacha Moshe Rabban. They conferred a halachic opinion before consulting with Moshe. When you're a junior judge, you have to consult with the more senior judge. And no one, of course, is more senior than Moshe. And yes, they were great people. Yes, they were titans. Yes, they were next in line to replace, to succeed Moshe and Aaron. But they should not have rendered a halachic ruling before consulting Moshe. That's the first reason why Rashi offers uh, the two sons of Aaron died. Alternatively, says Rashi, because they entered the Miktash, they entered the sanctuary, they were drunk or they were inebriated. They had drunk some wine. And immediately after, Rashi points out, after this whole episode's over, God tells us, or the Torah tells us, that it is prohibited for Kohanim to do any service or to enter the sanctuary when they have recently drunk wine. And therefore, the juxtaposition is not a coincidence. The reason why these two sons died, is because they had entered after drinking wine. Now, there are many other reasons in the sources, as we shall yet see. So this tragedy strikes, and immediately Moshe speaks to Aaron, verse 3, Vayomir Moshe el Aharon. Moshe says to Aaron, this is what God had said. Chapter 29 of the book of Exodus. God said, when they were talking about the plan for the Mishkan, for the tabernacle, God tells Moshe, this is where I will appear for the Jewish people. And this is where I will be sanctified with my glory. Moshe understood, Rashi explains, that God was telling him that this Mishkan, this tabernacle, it will serve as a device to sanctify God's glory. And the way Moshe understood that is that someone very special, very powerful, and very lofty, and very great is going to die. And through that experience, the nation will Know in a very tangible way that God's presence permeates this Mishkan, this Tabernacle, and Moshe is telling Aaron, "I thought that either you or me, maybe both of us, were going to die, and now that your sons died, and this is how God chose to glorify, to sanctify His name. Now I know that they are even greater than you and me, Moshe." Is telling Aaron, and of course, this is to serve as some comfort. Through the death of Nadav and Avihu, God will be sanctified. Their death is not in vain. This is going to forever alter the perception of the nation as to what's happening in this tabernacle. And God chose the absolute best, the creme de la creme of the nation. The best. I thought it was me or you. Turns out, your sons, Moshe tells Aaron, they are the best. And of course, Moshe's not speaking hyperbolically. He's genuinely stating that Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, were greater than him and Aaron. And with their death, there's this incredible augmentation of the glory of God. Their death is so tragic. It's so sudden. It's so surprising. It's so unexpected. Everyone's shaken to the core. When they realize that the presence of God is truly in the tabernacle. With those that are close to me, I will be sanctified. These people are very close to God, perhaps even closer than Moshe and Aaron. And then Moshe instructs the cousins of the deceased to go bury them. The Kohanim themselves are not allowed to come impure. They should be carried out with their garments. And Moshe instructs Aaron and his two remaining sons. Don't rend your garments in mourning. Don't allow your hair to grow out in mourning. The whole nation will mourn, but you won't mourn. You're not allowed to leave the tabernacle. And in fact, the sons of Aaron and Aaron follow Moshe's orders. And then the verse continues, God spoke to Aaron not to drink wine or other intoxicants and to enter the sanctuary or do any service inside of it. Now the death of Nathanael is perhaps the most tragic and shocking events in the Torah. From this incredible, exultant high to this awful low. And Moshe tells Aaron, the whole nation will bewail this conflagration that God burned. What is happening over here in the story? What was the miscalculation, or was there a miscalculation in Nathanael? Let's try to analyze and ponder this event. I want to ask a series of questions, and hopefully, with the help of the Almighty, we can resolve them with one valuable principle. Let's start with the following question. When you look at the sources, reasons abound for the cause of the death of Nadav and Aviyu. Why would the Almighty allow this to happen? So, of course, Rashi already tells us that There are two reasons. Maybe they were drunk or they failed to seek the advice of Moshe. But the other sources, they heap all sorts of other reasons as to why this tragedy happened. The Midrash tells us that they weren't wearing the requisite garments that are required to enter where they entered. The Kohanim have to be properly dressed. We read about that, of course. In the Book of Exodus, Tzavah, of course, last week as well, Parshas Tzav, there are certain garment requirements that are necessary for the Kohen to do their work. They weren't wearing the requisite garments, and a Cohen who enters to do service in the Tabernacle not dressed properly—that is a capital crime. That's another idea that the Midrash tells us. Or maybe they took the fire from the wrong location. Or maybe they entered without washing their hands and feet. Or they refrained from getting married. They were eligible bachelors, the most eligible in the whole nation, but they were not interested in getting married. And that was their crime. Or they had no sons. Of course, if they're not married, they're not going to have any sons. But perhaps the fact that they did not have children, that was their crime. Or, the Midrash tells us, Moshe and Aaron were walking, and behind them were Nadav and Aviel. And one of them said to the other, Masaya Musu Stenim Halalu, when will these old people finally die, and you and me will lead the nation? And... Of course, you know, they expected to outlive Moshe and Aaron. They're the next generation. So you would imagine the actuarial table would tell you that they're going to outlive their father and uncle, respectively. But look what happened. They, in fact, predeceased Moshe and Aaron. In the words of the Talmud, you find many examples of old camels carrying the carcasses of their young. So this terrible tragedy that the older generation will have to bury the younger generation. But because they didn't have proper respect for Moshe and Aaron, they're walking behind them and saying, oh, when will they finally die when you and I can lead the nation? That was the crime that did them in. Or maybe this is some residual payment for Aaron for his role in the golden calf. Or maybe they didn't consult each other. Again, there are many, many different reasons offered in the sources as to why none of you died. It's kind of strange because you look at the Torah, chapter 10, verse 1, the Torah tells us where they went wrong. They brought the k'tores, they brought the incense, and they brought a foreign fire that God had not commanded. So what do we make of this multiplicity of reasons offered for their demise the Torah tells us explicitly why they died. And it's also strange that these reasons seem to be so divergent from each other and so distant to what the actual verse says that they brought a fire on fire. So how do we reconcile what our sages tell us as to the reason why they died? How do we reconcile that with the verse? Now, if you look at what our sages tell us, You know, Moshe tells us that legitimately they are greater than he and Aaron. And they were hoping to lead the nation. That was the plan. They were going to succeed Moshe and Aaron. But what do we make of them walking behind them and pining for Moshe and Aaron to die? When will these old people finally die? It seems wildly inappropriate for anyone to say that. Certainly not someone like Nadav and Aviv, great people that Moshe legitimately says are greater than me and you, Aaron. They walk into the tabernacle drinking so you could argue well they weren't commanded not to do it. But still, did they really think it was appropriate to enter the sanctuary or the, even the Holy of Holies? While inebriated? Seems very strange. There has to be something deeper going on over here. Another question. The Talmud, the Book of Sanhedrin, page 52a, it's talking about something totally unrelated. It's talking about the four methods of capital punishment. There are four methods of capital punishment in the Jewish system of law. And one of them is srefa, fire. How do you do Srefa? How do you execute someone who's guilty of a crime that warrants the punishment of Srefa of fire? Do you make a big pyre, a big bonfire, and throw them in? Says the Talmud, no. You take some molten lead, and you open their mouth, and you force it open if they don't want it, and you pour it down their throat, and they die from within. But externally, they are unblemished. And the proof that this is a method of death that can be quantified as fire, the proof is from Nadav and Avil. They died in a very specific and unusual way. The Talmud tells us that two ropes of fire, they exited from the Holy of Holies, and they traveled and they split into four ropes of fire, And two went into the nostrils of these two Kohanim, respectively. So you have two in the nostrils of Nadav and two in the nostrils of Aviu, and they were burned. And the proof is that they were carried out with their garments intact. So they were only burnt internally, not externally. In the words of the Talmud, it was a burning of the soul internally, but the body was still intact. That's how they were killed. Two ropes, split into four, one for every nostril of these two kohanim. It's all internal. Their soul, so to speak, was taken away, but their body was unaffected. And the Talmud extends this to the method of execution by fire. That's how it's done in the Jewish system of capital punishment. So it is fire, but a very specific kind of fire that affected them only internally. Two ropes that come from the Holy of Holies, and then they bifurcate into four ropes and enter their nostrils. Now, when we hear about fire entering their nostrils, it sounds like that's the pathway of the soul. If you want to take the soul out, you would probably look for the place where the soul went in. We know that God blew the soul of life into the nostrils of Adam. So you would imagine that's why this particular kind of death was done in this fashion. It does seem reminiscent, so to speak, of the exact undoing, so to speak, of, of, of Adam. If I had to just read this Talmud, it would give off the impression that there's something about none of that is reminiscent of Adam, specifically Adam before his sin, specifically Adam before he was merged, before he was fused with any forces of evil. But it is noteworthy for studying the story that this is the particular way that they died, this way and not another way. Another point to ponder. The verse tells us, that they brought a specific offering that was unauthorized. And which offering was that? That was the offering of ketores, of incense. Incense and not any other offering. Now, just a few verses prior, we talked about this a few minutes ago, Moshe and Aaron entered the tent of meeting and they left. And Rashi tells us, that the reason why they entered was so that Moshe can show, can teach Aaron how to bring the Khtores, how to bring the incense. So it's interesting that we have Khtores appearing in very close proximity to each other in our Parsha. Now we can ask the following question. You know, why does Moshe have to teach Aaron how to bring the Khtores? What about the myriad other services that a kohé needs to do. And it's also noteworthy that this is the specific offering that is the undoing of Nod and That's the ktoras. So it seems to me that there's something about the ktoras that has to be particularly taught in a specific manner because it can be very volatile if done in the incorrect way. There's the ktoras that led to the demise of Nadav of Aviyu. Moshe was worried about that, perhaps. And he says to Aaron, this one I got to show you specifically. I can't just convey to you verbally. I can't just tell it to you orally. I have to show you how to do it so you don't do it incorrectly. So what's the difference between the k'tores, the way it was precisely taught by Moshe to Aaron, versus the k'tores that was done by Nadav and Avihu? So I want to suggest an approach to understand everything that's happening over here. I think it's very deep. It's a few moving parts, so listen carefully. Let's start off with an analogy, courtesy of the Talmud. The Talmud, the book of Sotah, on page 17a, tells us, Darash Rabbi Ativa, Rabbi Ativa expounded, Ish Ve'isha, a man and a woman, Ish Isha. If they're zachu, if they're meritorious, Shechina be'nei The Shechina, the divine presence, is amongst them. Now, we talked about the, the tabernacle, the Mishkan. The word Mishkan is from the word Shechina. Ve'asuli mikdash, they shall make for me a sanctuary. V'sha'chanti besocham, I will dwell amongst them. There's something in the tabernacle, in the temple, that can be defined as God dwelling amongst the nation. God dwelling amongst the nation. V'shachanti besocham. And if a man and a woman are meritorious, the shekhinah the same divine presence that is featured in the Mishkan, can be amongst a man and a woman if they're meritorious. There's a way for a man and a woman to reenact the experience of the tabernacle of the Mishkan. However, if they're not meritorious, then they have a very different result. A fire consumes them. Now Rashi explains what's going on over here. The Hebrew word for a man is ish. The Hebrew word for a woman is isha. It sounds kind of similar, Ish, Isha. Both of those words have the same letters, Aleph and Shin, which is Eish, which is fire. A man is Eish, meaning fire, plus the letter Yud. So that renders the fire into an Ish, not an ish, an Ish. A woman has the same letters, Aleph, Shin, Eish, meaning fire, But there's another letter that's added to her name, and that's the He. So from an ish becomes Isha. And the letter Yud from the man's name. And the letter He from the woman's name, that is a Yud and a He, and that's the name of God. So if they are meritorious, then there's an Ish and an Isha, a man and a woman. And the name of God is amongst them. The Yud is featured in the man's name. And the hey is featured in the woman's name. But if they're not meritorious, then God removes his name, the yod, from the man. And the ish gets downgraded to an ish, And the hey from the woman and the isha gets downgraded likewise to an ish. And all you have is fire and fire. And the fire consumes them. Within a man and within a woman, there is fire. But if you add the name of God, that fire is ameliorated and God is amongst them. But if God is not amongst them, if the Shekhinah is not amongst them, all you have left is fire and the fire consumes them. Now, what's interesting from this is that at no point does the fire get eliminated. There's always a fire present. But when... God is amongst them, then the fire is not harmful. In fact, to the contrary, their union becomes a domicile for God. But if you remove the name of God from the Ish and the Isha respectively, all that remains is a destructive fire on his side and on her side, and that will envelop and engulf them. An incredible idea in the Talmud. A man is fire. A woman is fire. But if you add the name of God, the Yud to the man, the He to the woman, then the Shechina can reside amongst them. There could be some sort of overlap, some sort of commonality between a man and a woman and the temple. A meritorious couple can replicate the divine presence of the temple. Yeah, the Yud and the fire becomes Ish. You add the hay, and the fire becomes Isha. And you've neutralized the potential damage of the fire, and the presence of God is amongst them. And again, it doesn't eliminate the fire. It changes it. Now, how how does this work? How does a meritorious husband and wife have the Shechina amongst them? Now, I think it's a very interesting question because if we could figure out the recipe, so to speak, for a man and a woman to have the Shekhinah amongst them, we can also uncover the essence of the conditions in which the Shekhinah resides anywhere. If we could figure out why with an ish and an Isha, God, of all places, this is where God wants to be, we could also understand why he would want to be in the mishkan, in the tabernacle. And that will help us understand the essence, so to speak, of God's presence in the tabernacle. So I think that the secret lies in the letter Yud and the letter He. And again, this is a little bit complicated, but bear with me. The Talmud elsewhere, the book of Menachos, on page 29b, it's quoting a verse, Ki Bika Hashem tzur olamim. With Ka, which is the name of God. God is the rock of the worlds. That's a verse in Isaiah. And the way the Talmud unpacks it is fascinating. God created two worlds, this world and the next world. And one world he created with the letter He. And the other world he created with the letter Yud. But I don't know which one is which. Did he create the next world with a yud and this world with a hay, or this world with a yud and next world with a hay? Says the Talmud, "I'll prove it to you." When it talks about the creation of this world, Genesis chapter two, verse four, these are the chronicles of heaven and earth, behi baram. Don't read it Behebaram Ella Behebaram. The way the Talmud reads that verse, God created this world, Behe with the letter He. And if God created this world with letter He, invariably He created the next world with the letter Yud. And the reason why this world was created with the letter Hey is because this world is similar to the letter He. Just like the hay, it has that big hollow space in the middle. And anyone who wants to stay in the middle can stay, but he could also leave and fall down the hole in the middle. So to this world. It has the potential for people to drop out, so to speak, to check out of the world, and to be outside the confines of admissible behavior in the world. But this world also has the feature that the hay has, and that is on the top left side, there's a little window. And if you fall out, you could claw your way back in. You could find that window on the top. And just as the hey, you can enter it. So to repentance is a feature of this world. You could get back in even if you've fallen out. And that's why this world is created with the letter hey. And why is the next world created with the letter yud? Yud is the smallest of the letters because the amount of people that are meritorious and they earn a portion in olamaba, it's very, very small. And therefore, the appropriate letter to create olamaba with is the letter Yud. Obviously, this is a very mysterious Talmud, very difficult Talmud to understand. It sounds very tabalistic because it is, but what we know from this Talmud, just on a very basic level, is that this world is created with the letter He. And Olmaba is created with the letter Yud. Now those letters, of course, were featured earlier. A man is Eish plus the letter Yud. A woman is Eish, fire, plus the letter He. And when they unite, the Shechinah is amongst them. What well, that's telling us is that the definition of the Shekhinah, the divine presence coming to this world, is when the Yud and the He come together, when heaven and earth unite. The definition of the Shekhinah, or the definition of the Shekhinah, the the conditions in which the Shekhinah will rest, both amongst men and women, and we could posit in the Mishkan, that's when heaven and earth unify. When there's a harmony of opposites, that's when the divine presence can find a hospitable home. It used to be less controversial to say that men and women are different. The Torah obviously believes that. Certainly, the Torah believes that. Nowadays, a lot of people contest that But the Torah even believes that, in a certain, to a certain extent, they're, they're opposites. But when they come together and they unite for a common purpose and there's harmony amongst them, there's this fusion of two worlds, then the Shekhinah is amongst them. And to me, this, I think, is the definition of the temple serving as a receptacle for God. If you think about it, what do you have in a temple? God says, I'm going to be there. So God comes from heaven on high, so to speak. And resides in this venue. What else do you have in the temple? You have animals. What does God have to do with animals? Obviously, it's a, it's a great question. It's a central question to ponder. But I think we have a definition of what the temple is, of what the tabernacle is. It's a place where God resides. And what kind of place can merit that God resides within it? a place that harmonizes heaven and earth. If you can create parity between heaven and earth, you take a world that, by default, is very distant from heaven. It's very base, very mundane, very physical. It doesn't innately recognize or submit to God and his authority. And if you can make this world compatible with all of the world to come, with the spiritual world, that is the magic recipe to have God come, to have the divine presence dwell there. If you think about it, that's what a sacrifice is. You take an animal, it's ostensibly base, it's a coarse thing spiritually, and you elevate it to God. You take the mundane and make it holy. That's what a sacrifice is. That's what mitzvahs are. If you think about it, what's a mitzvah? A mitzvah is something that I do with my physicality, with my body. I do it in this world, in this physical world. If you can exhibit in the physical world with your physical body, you can exhibit the dominion of God, that is the definition of holiness. And that's what happens if a couple, if a man and woman are meritorious, and that's what happens in the tabernacle. We don't believe that spiritual greatness is achieved by repudiating, by rejecting our physicality and our body. We don't believe in eliminating, so to speak, the fire, but to add the Shechina to it, to make the fire meritorious of having God's presence in it. And how is that done? By doing what God asks of us, namely to unify heaven and earth, to take these two opposite worlds and make them harmonious with each other. I want to suggest that this is where Nadav and Aviyah went wrong. If the Talmud implies that there's something about the death of Nadav and Aviyah that was the exact undoing of the birth, so to speak, of Adam, it's because none of the view were like Adam before his sin, meaning they were like angels. They didn't really have a foothold in this world. And I want to suggest that that's really where they went wrong. And everything that we know about them and all the reasons that are given for why they died can all be understood in this paradigm. They brought a foreign fire, the verse tells us, that God did not command. And a fire came and engulfed them. So lots of fires here. Of course, you need a fire for the temple. It's necessary. But they didn't bring a fire. They brought a foreign fire that God did not command. What is the fire where God's presence is felt? The ish, the isha, it's the, the fire and the fire, plus something else. It's not just plus heaven, plus something really lofty, supernally spiritual. It's heaven and earth. There is a protocol. If you want God's presence, you got to follow what God commands. He wants you to bring a fire, but what, what type of fire? A fire that unites heaven and earth. Not that we were, we're above that. Moshe, of course, tells us, and again, not hyperbolically, they are greater. They're loftier. They're more elevated than Moshe and Aaron themselves. They're operating on a different level, where it's a totally spiritual experience, where it's a heavenly experience that's divorced, that's severed from all vestiges of physicality in this world. They're engaging with this sacrifice. In a supernal, much more elevated, a transcendental level. And their experience is completely spiritual to the exclusion of this world. And that's a foreign fire. The fire that God commands us is the unity of the physical and spiritual. One world without the other, even if the world that you're opting for is the world of the angels, is the world of the spirit, it's still a foreign fire, and it's not what God commands. And such a fire that's not properly channeled and directed, that's a fire that's very dangerous. It engulfs and consumes. Think about it. You know, fire can operate in very different ways. It could fuse things together. It could weld things that are different together. It can also separate. When you have a fire, it removes all the different parts to their base matter. God resides in the temple, in the tabernacle. But what are the conditions needed? Well, we know that. It has to be with the type of fire, so to speak, that unites opposites, ish, isha, heaven and earth. These are examples of this principle. But when there's a fire that does not unite opposites, that's a foreign fire that God does not command. And I want to suggest that this is where view went wrong. This is where they erred. Their philosophy, I think, is very understandable. It's much more elevated. It's much more ethereal to have just holiness. Without the influences of this world, the world's so full of nonsense and the possibility for sin and corruption. This world, after all, tolerates the repudiation of God. It's much better to have just holiness, just the soul, just the spiritual, just the next world, just the Yud. That's the proper way to serve God. And they brought that type of fire. That's what they wanted to confer. But they erred. That's the foreign fire. That's not what God wants. And that's not the kind of fire that summons the Shechina. Quite the contrary. It engulfed them. Now, specifically, they chose katoras. our sages tell us, that of all the senses, the sense of smell, that is the experience of the soul, which is why, of course, by the Havdalah ceremony that we do after Shabbos, we have besom and we have the spices because that's the way to assuage the sadness of the soul at its reduction of spiritual stature. On Shabbos, you have the Nesham the expanded, more potent soul. After Shabbos, that goes away, and the soul is down. It is depressed, and is about a fit of melancholy. And the way you appease it is with something that you smell. If they're going to offer a sacrifice, but they want it to be just spiritual, just for the soul... They're definitely going to bring katoras But there's another way to do katoras There's another angle of katoras And that's what Moshe showed Aaron. And this is something we've spoken about in the past. Part of the katoras is a rancid spice. There are 11 different ingredients that go to the k'tores, And one of them is Dichelbana, the which smells awful. And this, the Talmud tells us, is symbolic of the parts of our nation that are less admirable, less elevated. And thus, there's a way to view the Ketores as not just having an experience of the soul, something that's just the, the smell that we have, this experience that is only appreciated by the soul. There's another way to do it. And that's to unite the disparate parts, to take even the lowest part, even the people that are so low that they're, they're sinners, and to elevate that as well, and to bring that together in service of God. So there are two fires, and there are two types of Khtoris. Just as there is a type of fire that's a foreign fire, one that separates. And there's another fire, which is what God wants, one that unites. There are two types of incense. And Moshe wanted to show Aaron to do it properly. And he directs him how to do it properly. All the other sacrifices are definitely the unity, the unification of heaven and earth. This one, there is a risk of it being perhaps misappropriated. And Moshe needs to show Aaron how to do it correctly. Now, we have this incredible story where Moshe and Aaron are walking, and Nadav and Avihu are behind them, and we have a quip. One of them tells the other, Masaya, Musu, Elu, when will these old people finally kick the bucket? When will they die? And you and I will leave the nation. And again, to us, this sounds very inappropriate to say, you know, the, these are two people, and, and they're hoping that their father Aaron and their uncle Moshe will die just so that they could become the leaders? It seems like something that none of us would be guilty of. Uh, Maybe they'd get that, I don't know. But none of us would be guilty of saying that. How, How could they say that? Especially when we're told that Moshe says that they're greater than them. Here's the answer. When someone dies, we know what happens. Their soul is removed from the bodily incarceration that it had. And the soul is able to go to its roots. The body, of course, goes back to its roots. In the eyes of these giants, not of an who are then operating like Adam before his sin, in their view, to die is an improvement because the soul no longer has to be married, fused, welded together to the physicality. The heaven and the earth don't have to be married and unified, the heaven to go back to heaven, in the place where it's much more natural, and much more appropriate, of course, in the eyes of Nathanael What an incredible opportunity to shed the physical body, and to be able to experience spiritual proximity to God without all the blockages of the physicality. That's ideal. It's much more preferable than to live in this world. And that's what they want from Moshe and Aaron. Because again, in their view, the way they're operating on this, again, level that we can cannot, cannot even fathom, like angels, like Adam before a sin, they're operating with the understanding that to be, to be solely a soul, that's an upgrade. And that's why they're saying that. And if you think about all the other reasons that were offered for their demise, I think all of them can be traced back to this principle, to this foreign fire. They weren't wearing the right garments. They didn't wash their hands and their feet. This whole idea of of doing things in a physical dimension, physical garments and physical behavior, to them it's not important. You're a soul. And that's how they're living. Perhaps they wanted the wine to be able to lose their association with their physicality in order to soar spiritually. No wife and no kids, of course, they don't want to invest in this world. They want to live just as a soul. And how did they die? It's interesting. So Our seed tell us. Ropes of fire left the Holy of Holies splitting into two, burning their soul but not their body. The fire gave them what they wanted. The fire completely and seamlessly separated the body and their soul. The body and the soul really were separate. They were operating separately. But this is how they were living and this is the choice that they made and this is what they ended up with. I think this Idea is a very powerful one for us. The Talmud tells us that every person that does not own land, kol adam, she'en lo karka, the Talmud, the book of Yuvamus, tells us, ain't no adam, it's not a person. My grandfather, a blessed memory, used to interpret this, this is not about land owners, or, you know, you have to own land to vote, none of that. We have to be grounded. We have to, not soar to heaven, not to float like angels. If you're not grounded in this world, you're doing service of God. That's a foreign fire. That's not what he wants. He doesn't want you to act like an angel. The Torah was given to humans, not to angels. And the fire that the Almighty is desirous of is take the heaven and the earth, take our spirit and our, our soul, our, our, our angel within us and merge that and make that compatible, make that on par with the animal that we have within us. To take the disparate parts of us, the heaven and the earth, and to make them work together in unison, in harmony, to do the will of the Almighty. None of it view you. They were like Adam before his sin. They're angels. But that's a foreign fire, and that's not what God wants of us. I think it's a good reminder. You know, very often... Thinking people will say, you know, we're human. We're very fallible. We make all sorts of mistakes. We are full of shortcomings. We're a work in progress. We're not perfect. And that could be depressing because, you know, if you're a thinking person, especially if you have a, an appreciation for Torah, you want to be more elevated. You want to be more angelic. But if you have to realize, That the reason why we're here and what anybody wants of us is to take who we are, and that's not perfect, and that's the starting point, and to perfect it to the best of our abilities. That is why we have Torah. The Talmud tells us that when Moshe went up to heaven to get the Torah, the angel said, "No, no, 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 the Torah shouldn't be in the hands of frail, fallible, sinful humans. We're so problematic. Why would the Torah, the mighty, the holy Torah, the mighty has for 974 generations before the world is created, that lofty, supernal Torah, you going know, to give it to humans, to flesh and blood? And Moshe responds that that is exactly why we have Torah, because we're fallible, because we're so problematic, because we have our physicality, that's precisely why we have Torah. The elevation of that physicality, that is the holy fire, that God is desirous of, and that He commands us to do, we are imperfect. But with hard work and with the aid of the Torah, we can improve. And every step of improvement is to be celebrated and cherished. Not view these exemplars, they were titans. Really great. Perhaps even greater than Motion Aaron. But for that reason, they're not compatible with work in the temple. They're not compatible for this world. They're angels walking amongst us. We're imperfect. We have the capacity of being very destructive. We have this destructive fire within us. But if we channel it properly, we're not going to eliminate the fire. We channel it. Make sure that heaven and earth are working together in unison. It could be elevated properly. And we, too, can become receptacles of the divine presence, which is an incredible insight that I think can change our lives. This is what the Almighty wants of us. This is the fire that he commands us. Take your imperfections, take your physicality, elevate it, improve it. If you can take who you are as a human and improve and improve and improve and create every day, every moment, make your body, your physicality, a little bit more lofty, a little bit more like the soul, that's what God wants. And within you, the divine presence can rest. I'd like to end up the podcast with a question we have right after the horrific episode of the death of Nathanaaviyu. God speaks to Aaron and tells him to refrain from wine or intoxicants when walking into the sanctuary or doing any of the service. The Talmud tells us that today, it's a whole question the Talmud. Are Kohanim allowed to drink wine? Because what happens if the temple's built right away and we need Kohanim and someone's drunk? You can't be drunk. You have to be ready every moment, every second, maybe the temple will be rebuilt and you will be needed as a Kohen. That's the halacha, that's the law. A Kohen is not allowed to drink wine when doing work in the temple or entering the sanctuary and its grounds. And the question is, why not? We just celebrated the festival of of Purim a month ago. It was nice to drink. You get a little happy. You remove some of your inhibitions. You take the edge off a little bit. Why is it such a problem to walk into the temple with a little bit of some artificial boost to your dopamine, to your feeling? It's good. Listen, you have a little drink, drink a little, little Chaim, as they say. Drink a little Chaim. Be in a better mood, better spirits. Could do the work of the Almighty better. What's wrong with that? Interesting question. And the answer, one of the answers given, this is from the Ksav Sofer, the son of the Khasam Sofer he says something very fascinating. The temple is a holy place. It's a powerful place. It's a place where it's a lot of gold for a reason, to get your attention. And when you walk into one door from the temple, you have to leave from a different door so that awe and that experience doesn't get old or stale. This is a place where God rests. And it's a place where you can have an experience of a lifetime But it's important that your experience be real and genuine. It should not be artificial. The objective of going to the temple is to be elevated to a point of ecstasy. That's the objective. But it's important that it be done from the actual experience of going there and not from anything artificial. I was thinking this idea maybe can be expandable to all other areas of life. Think about it. Life is so robustly joyous. Every moment that we're alive, every breath that we take, every flower that we see, every food that we enjoy, every glass of water that we drink, every coffee that wakes us up, to see the sun, to see the clouds, to see the trees, to hear noises, to hear sounds. We have such joy in our lives. Really, if you just think about it and you appreciate what you have, you'll just be pulsating, coursing with joy, with unbridled ecstasy. That's what life is. Life is just joy. And the experts know of course, we don't wish this for anyone, that even when someone suffers, there's a way to experience that joy, joyfully. Of course, the book of Lamentations, Echa was written with prophecy. Prophecy, a prerequisite for prophecy is joy. If you're not joyous, you cannot have prophecy. How was the prophet Jeremiah joyous when talking about these terrible things that befell the Jewish nation? Even when they're suffering, there's the realization that you're alive, that you're a human, that you're a Jew, that you have a relationship with the Almighty, that the Almighty listens to you when you talk to Him, that you have the opportunity, the potential to fulfill something of great consequence in this world. Life itself is so joyous. There's no need for any artificial enhancers. Mitzvah Godola Leos basimcha Tamed. we're told. It's a mitzvah to be happy, joyous, at all times. That mitzvah, just as the mitzvah of walking into the temple, we can fulfill without any artificial enhancers. I thank you for listening to this podcast. As always, my email address is RabbiWalBachiba.com. Have an incredible rest of your Pesach. Have an elevated festival. May we all be liberated from our own Egypt that we may be, be shackled to. Have an incredible Shabbos. An uplifting Shabbos. And please, God, with all the Mighty we'll talk again next week. And again, my email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com.